Thanks, everyone. I uh, appreciate you attending this event. I know it's, it's uh, late in the day, late in the week, and uh, really happy to see so many people in the room. My name is Jamie Kinney. I'm the Principal Product Manager for AWS Batch and High Performance Computing at AWS. Uh, happy here to uh, introduce a, a few of my friends and colleagues. So uh, we have uh, Zavin joining us from, from GoPro. You want to raise your hand real quick? Uh, we've got Tom joining us from, from AWS, uh, one of our, our principal solutions architects, uh, and Lee from here, from the, the highly autonomous uh, driving division of, of Here System. So uh, hopefully we've got a great talk for you. Uh, wanted to um, spend a bit of time today uh, talking about a few things. We're going to first give you just a quick introduction, kind of recap on what, what is batch processing, what do we mean by that. Uh, then we're going to talk, uh, uh, Tom's going to give us an introduction to uh, Amazon ECS, not just an introduction, but really kind of talk about why is it relevant for, for batch processing uh, before we uh, get into Zavin's presentation on, on GoPro and how they use Amazon ECS, or EC2 Container Service. Then we'll switch gears a bit, and I'll uh, focus on AWS Batch, uh, introduce it to those of you who might not have had a chance to kick the tires, talk about some of our big releases at, at reInvent and leading up to this conference, um, as well as giving you a glimpse into our, our relatively near-term roadmap. Um, and then here, we'll, uh, we'll talk about how, uh, Lee will talk about how here's been using um, AWS Batch uh, for uh, autonomous driving and a number of other workloads. Um, and we'll save some time for Q&A, I promise. Uh, so first with the, the quick introduction to, to batch computing and batch processing. So uh, batch is a really interesting paradigm that, that's been around for, for literally decades. Uh, batch processing allows you to, it's kind of like a TiVo for, for your work. It lets you shift when a given job runs and, and where a given job runs. And in exchange for that flexibility, you can do things like take advantage of, of compute resources under, uh, that are acquired under different provisioning models. Or you can run workloads at, at times of day when you know, spot resources might be available at, at a lower cost or at higher capacity. But in order to take advantage of that flexibility and the many benefits that come from batch processing, uh, you need to think about the sequencing of your jobs um, and have orchestration systems that keep track of available resources or are provisioning the, the right types of resources in a, a just-in-time manner. And historically, you know, this, is, this has presented some challenges. Um, for a lot of batch workloads, these tend to be very uh, 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 high-scale workloads, very bursty workloads. You'll, you'll frequently see uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs coming in over a relatively short period of time, meaning that you need to be able to scale up uh, your, your compute resources, or at the very least, keep track of those jobs that aren't yet able to run because you don't have that, that capacity on hand. Less of an issue in the cloud, of course. Um, the other thing is that you need to think about uh, concurrency of, of workloads and, and how are you distributing your available processing across all of the available compute resources. And uh, Oftentimes, especially batch workloads, because these are running asynchronously, these are running automatically without human intervention, um, you need to make sure that you've got error handling. Things like the ability to retry a job in case of an application failure, or in the case of a, a part of your infrastructure becoming unavailable, in the case of spot instances, a, a spot instance termination, as, as one example. And so batch workloads require reliability tools to make sure that you can automatically retry jobs, and that you're able to distribute your work across a range of availability zones in the case of AWS. Uh, batch workloads benefit from, from simplicity. Batch is a, a pervasive model of computing. It's used by data scientists. It's used by uh, uh, life scientists. It's used by media and entertainment, by autonomous uh, uh, vehicle systems. It, it's used to uh, transcode and, and uh, do uh, uh, computer vision and, and image recognition on, on video streams, as, as you'll hear from, from GoPro. And so because there's so many workloads, you want to make it very easy to develop these tools and deploy them in your batch framework. Um, hence the importance of things like uh, container technology. 
And uh, it, it's also really important to make sure that you keep the cost of batch processing as, as low as possible. And so this is actually one of the reasons that AWS transitioned to the model of per second billing versus the hourly billing that we had previously. With per second billing, you have the possibility to uh, easily scale up a compute resource that's really precisely tailored to the needs of each of your jobs so that job runs as performantly as possible while that compute resource is running, but that you stop paying for that resource the moment that it, it's no longer needed. And so if you have jobs that are, are CPU intensive, maybe you're launching C5 instances. If you have jobs that need uh, GPUs, maybe you're running those on, on P3 instances or FPGAs uh, with the F1 instances. And in doing so, in able to uh, orchestrate the, the selection of these types of resources, uh, you'll need a, a higher level of infrastructure. So that's what we'll be talking about in a bit. And so cloud makes sense for this because we have a massive amount of capacity. We have a wide range of, of, of instance types. And with uh, services such as ECS and EKS and AWS Batch and, and Fargate, you now have the ability to uh, uh, use these resources even more efficiently uh, and be able to, because you're using Docker, be able to deploy your applications just as easily on, on AWS as you are on your laptop or in your own environment, in your own data centers if you have those. Uh, of course, under a pay-as-you-go model. And so containers make sense for, for batch processing workloads for, for a number of these reasons. Um, it, it's really a, a polyglot mechanism. Within a container, you can run a Java, an R, a Python application, Fortran code, a C or C++ application. Really, the, the, the sky's the limit. Um, and we have customers that are, that are you know, using containers to run um, this, this tremendous diversity of, of applications. And because you are packaging each of your, contain your applications within a container, you can easily constrain the amount of resources that you're giving to a, a specific job while it's running. And this allows you to do things like bin pack multiple jobs onto a, an EC2 instance, giving you even more efficiency in the way that, that you run your workloads. Um, and then finally, it, it, it helps make sure that you're not locked into any one platform because, again, you can develop on your laptop, deploy on Amazon just as easily as you can deploy anywhere else. So with that uh, brief introduction, um, I want to make sure that over the talk we, we focus on um, a really important uh, vision or, or tenant of, of Amazon, which is that we want to give you as much choice as possible. Today we're going to be talking about just two of the, of the many, many options that exist for using AWS to run uh, containerized batch processing workloads. We'll be focusing on EC2 container service and AWS batch. And so to, to focus on ECS, I'm going to hand us off to, to Tom at this point. Thank you. Thanks, Jamie. Okay, so before we kind of jump into the specific use cases, uh, I want to make sure everybody has a good baseline understanding of Elastic Container Service. The Container Service, uh, it, we provide that service as a way to bring your Docker containers and schedule those resources as tasks. Right, so you're able to build out the, the same kind of infrastructures and, and cluster and scale that uh, the way you always have, right, with auto-scaling. But then there's this additional layer where you're able to take containerized code and schedule it and then place it. There's even very flexible options for placing different types of processing containers on, say, GPU-based instances or heavy RAM-specific type instances uh, are available for those types of containers. Because as you define containers and tasks, you're specifying what sort of resources are necessary. Uh, they're very fast, super agile, they can be spun up, spun down, and then you start to integrate with all the other native AWS building blocks
Box services. So this, as a scheduler, as a, a way to pull together a load balancer, for example, if you're going to run a, a long-running service on it, uh, or integrating it with CloudWatch and our event streaming systems that allows you to trigger uh, all kinds of different execution patterns. So Batch is another example of a workload that works very well for containers. It's something that Jamie just talked quite a bit about. Now, this is an example where you see something like S3 become the storage mechanism for input and output when you're processing and executing a, a batch job. These are different reference architectures that we've seen emerge. And using the container service, you schedule out the jobs with the pure algorithmic code that you want to run against data that's separated. Another example, we actually can go and use triggers. Right? So this is where the, these integrations, again, start to, start to really become uh, advantageous. Now I can trigger a Lambda function that can execute and start up a batch process. Uh, that batch process being, again, a container running in tasks scheduled on top of that infrastructure. That infrastructure could scale. It could be a scheduled scaling uh, scenario, because these batch jobs often are maybe on a quarterly boundary. Maybe they're done weekly. Uh, it's a little bit more predictable than some of the real kind of hyperscale, spiky type workloads. In some cases, you can actually use uh, all of those, those scheduled APIs to do some really interesting work and optimize. Uh, another example, of course, queues. Right? As, a, as an intermediary, I can start to throw work into a queue, and then I can, again, abstract away the data persistence and let these tasks get scheduled out and go retrieve the data for itself to process, using the queue essentially as a, as a mechanism to maybe drive more scale, maybe to do all kinds of different um, parameterizations that could flow through in the messages themselves. The concept of a, of a queue in between your processing Super powerful, and you may even see a little something like that when Jamie comes back and talks more about the batch service itself. Uh, Long-running batch jobs, this is where you really can take advantage of things like spot. Right? If you have these um, you know, item-potent uh, workload items where you can retry things, get to a certain point, stop, snapshot your output, and then be able to just restart at any point in time, that, that lends itself very well to a, a spot type of a scenario. Spot often can give you 50 to 90% reduction in cost. So you can go kind of one of two directions. You can scale it quite a bit higher so that you can get done faster or pay less. Right? There's all these kinds of, of options at your fingertips when you can build these batch jobs, schedule them all out, and make sure they can all be restarted uh, very gracefully. So this is, this is uh, a little bit more about what I was talking about there, where Spot is super, super valuable. Uh, so just to summarize, the container service, Docker, bring it, schedule it, all this kind of flexibility. But, but keep in mind a couple of key tenets. Stay away from incorporating too much local state. Uh, you want to have that somewhere else, right? Because now I can, I can get much more f flexible. It's stateful in the sense that the processing logic is something you can add and remove at will. Um, make sure to minimize dependencies in your task definitions. As you start to get these things uh, designed and, and thought out, you can kind of paint yourself into a corner as to how flexible, where, where can different workloads actually execute and run if they add a ton of additional dependencies. So be smart about things being small and compact and easy to, easy to run. Um, monitor things with the APIs. 
So the event stream, cloud wash, all those things are there uh, to allow you to make decisions based on the state of the cluster or the state of the tasks themselves. Now that you've got these multiple layers of uh, auto-scaling capabilities, you can, you can do a lot more. Uh, so so that's, um, that's my piece. I want to hand it off to Zavin now to talk about a very specific example of using uh, ECS for batch. All right, hey everybody. Uh, my name is Avon. I'm uh, with GoPro. We are the team at GoPro that's been developing the AWS uh, cloud platform behind some of our key products for the last several years. Uh, first using EC2 and auto-scaling groups, and now more recently we're using ECS to do both our web and our API layer. So uh, today I'm going to share the team's experience migrating from those EC2-based applications. And I'll tell you a bit about the GoPro Plus service and the cloud platform behind it, what it looks like, what kind of uh, services we run there, and some of the lessons we've learned along the way. Uh, for those of you considering migrating to container-based, uh, a container-based paradigm, uh, I hope this is somewhat useful to you guys. I hope we, be able, we will be able to give you some pointers on how to make that transition as smooth as possible. But first, if you'll indulge me, GoPro, turn on. I just want to do an extreme selfie since I'm here. GoPro, take a photo. Awesome. So not just to indulge myself, but also to give some context. So when one of our customers uploads photos, takes photos and videos, they can be uploaded directly to the cloud via GoPro Plus. Uh, in 2016, we launched GoPro Plus. It's a subscription service that makes it easy to automatically upload, edit, store, and share your, your videos and photos from your GoPro devices. It also provides a number of other benefits, like uh, discounted GoPro accessories. So when a user signs up for the service, logs on, uses our Quip mobile app or desktop app, they're, integrating with, uh, they're inter interacting with our applications on the cloud platform which are all running in the EC2 container service. Uh, today, we're running 100% of our production services for GoPro Plus on ECS. So the platform consists of a number of different components, like I, like I mentioned, photo and video processing, uh, user and subscription management, uh, keeping track of devices like cameras and drones and mobile apps, and serving up the user interfaces for the users on the web and the mobile platforms. Uh, not to mention all of the infrastructure support services that we need to keep the systems healthy, something that my team, the DevOps team, is very interested in. I forgot my graphics. There they are. So we have today 60 services in ECS in production. We've split into several different clusters uh, to handle some apps that need a large amount of memory and some that need a large amount of compute. For example, doing video transcoding, different types of media processing. And we have today around 500 EC2 instances, although that is shrinking as we've been moving over to ECS, part of the main reason we decided to migrate over. And our platform serves around 100 million requests a day. Those are API requests. So for us, container orchestration was a long time coming. And I'd like to give you some sense of the pain points that we were dealing with before our move to containers. Uh, some of you may be very familiar with some of these. 
So for our apps and microservices, we used to run this classic model of just deploying AMIs. So we would deploy our code to an AMI image, then create an auto, a new auto-scaling group off that AMI, and then create a new sort of blue-green deployment from that new auto-scaling group. So this works, but it's very slow. It has multiple steps to it, many places to fail. Um, this led to some very long deployments and to some very unhappy developers and QA engineers. Uh, there's too many steps in this process, too many places to fail. As far as our workers doing the asynchronous uh, job uh, queue work, we also had some challenges there. So basically it comes down to visibility, control, and cost. Visibility, because orchestration was kind of a black box. We used a third-party service that did sort of an MQ, a managed MQ as a SaaS service. In that model, uh, it, all the orchestration logic was hidden from us. It ran in somebody else's infrastructure. So for example, if a container fails to start, that's hard to see. We had limit, limitations in terms of metrics and monitoring. And we actually ended up writing some middleware so that we could scrape this third-party API just to import the monitoring metrics into CloudWatch. Having fewer sources of data to monitor is always a good thing. And so that's one of the things we love about ECS. All of the stats are right there in CloudWatch. It makes it very easy to alert. And final point here, we couldn't always rely on the efficiency of the scheduler. So uh, again, operational overhead. It wasn't always very efficient to run these workloads. Uh, and we didn't have very much control over that. So we decided to move over to an orchestration solution. What about Kubernetes? Well, we learned yesterday that we'll be able to run managed Kubernetes on AWS, which is pretty cool. I'll just share with you some of the reasons that ECS was the best choice for us a few months ago when we started this project. Both solutions, both ECS and Kubernetes, uh, pretty much met most of the requirements for us. ECS came out ahead, however, in a few key areas. So number one, security policy specific to every service running in, in the ECS cluster. This is built into ECS via IAM roles. They're very familiar. Uh, we can be sure that every service has only the minimum access that it needs to do its job. This is key. We found a very familiar set of abstractions that look very much like auto-scaling groups. And the same AWS CLI and APIs that we all know so well work very well with ECS as well. Integration with AWS services like CloudWatch and Elastic Load Balancing are there, uh, as are the usual Python APIs like Bodo. Next one for us was really crucial, enterprise support. So we've been working with our AWS enterprise support team for a number of years now. Uh, they're really great. We really value their support. So from the business point of view, this was extremely important, migrating all of our production services to a brand new platform. Very important for us to have that kind of level of support, which we could get from AWS. And finally, the last bullet point, uh, less cluster maintenance. So the only cluster maintenance we've had to do with ECS is really updating that base AMI for the EC2 instances. And uh, of course, now with Fargate, you don't even have to do that. So that's pretty awesome as well. Uh, our DevOps team, some of which are here today, also automated a nice solution for us that goes out and retrieves the most recent optimized, uh, ECS-optimized AMI and automatically rolls it through our ECS clusters with zero touch. So, Pretty much we already made Fargate before AWS came up with it. That was a joke. OK. So let's move on and have a look at an example of one of the services we run in ECS. 
This is a high-level architecture diagram of our media service. So in this example, we have a client over here on the left. That could be my GoPro camera. It could be a mobile device running our app. And it's making calls through an ELB to an, an app layer serving the API. So the client in this example might receive back from the API a signed URL for upload to S3. So it could directly upload photos or videos to our S3 buckets. After the file is uploaded, the media service might kick off a job asynchronously to transcode the video. It could pull a frame out of the video. It could create a thumbnail out of it. There's a lot of things we can do with the raw image or video once we get it. So in this example, there's a pretty classic pattern of just a decoupled, asynchronous kind of architecture. So all the long-running jobs, the worker tasks there, are able to complete, take the time that they need. And meanwhile, the client gets a really fast response from the API layer. So this allows the workers to just work out of band and still keep very low latency for the uh, client request. Um, another crucial point to note here is that both the app tasks and the worker tasks scale independently. So they could be running on the same ECS cluster. They could be running on two different ECS clusters with different hardware under them. Key point is we want to be able to scale out those workers to meet the actual demand of the moment to keep our SLA low. You also notice we're using SQS queues here. This is a key part of the decoupled architecture. This means that essentially if one of these uh, microservices is down, that's OK because the messages are already on the queue. We don't have to block and wait for that service to come back up. Service comes back up, looks at the queue, and it picks up its messages and keeps going. All right, so as far as our migration, uh, I, I'll just share with you some of our, our, our key learnings from our migration into ECS. Uh, hopefully, this will help make it relatively painless for those of you undertaking this. Uh, number one, our, our main paradigm switch here was moving to infrastructure as code. So we chose Terraform. We use Terraform for almost everything, everything in this whole stack, everything from the VPCs all the way up to the task definitions and the scaling parameters. Every, uh, even deployments to ECS can be done with either Terraform or CloudFormation, if you like, pretty much uh, equivalent. Uh, you can do the deployments because deploying to ECS is just updating a task definition with a new Docker image name. Some of our learnings with infrastructure as code. Our DevOps team maintains base modules that implement that stack that you just saw. And our development teams just import those base modules. They just have to fill in a few key variables, like the service name, task definition uh, parameters, like CPU allocation, memory allocation, and some of the alarm thresholds that dictate when the service should scale up, when it should scale down. So for us, for our workers, we make use almost exclusively of the SQS maximum queue length size as our metric to scale on. So this is one of those paradigm shifting things that DevOps is supposed to be doing. We're giving more control and more visibility to the development teams. No longer do they have to come to an operations guy and ask about uh, the scaling parameters. They can just look right in their code. We check the Terraform definitions for the infrastructure in with the same application code in Git. So everybody can read it. and. Some people can write it, too. Next key point, uh, release tagging. So in moving to container-based workloads, really important to keep track of your container uh, image versions. Uh, we want to make sure that an identical tag is applied to both the git commit, to the Docker image, and to the task itself running in ECS. This makes it very easy to track changes all the way through to production. 
operations, QA, management can look at the console and know exactly what version of code is running. So we use something called semantic versioning to do this. Applies a very nice major minor uh, point release version tag. Uh, this is also really nice if you're doing blue-green deployments because it's easy to see with the ECS console which version of the co code is deployed where. Uh, I'm going to include the slide in the deck. I'm not going to go through it in the interest of time. You can look it up on SlideShare. This details our release tagging um, flow in some detail. And the next one is on our deployment pipeline. Just some of the technologies we're using here includes API Gateway, uh, CircleCI, and GitHub to get our containers deployed into our VPCs and into ECS. So check this out on SlideShare if you're interested. Skip that. Um, one more, I'm gonna go back. Autoscaling. So a few hints on autoscaling. Um, so best practices, ECS scales the underlying EC2 cluster out when the sum total of the service resource requirements is more than what's available on the cluster. I mentioned we use the queue length metric to scale for most of our workers. And for almost all the web services, we just scale on CPU or memory, pretty easy. Uh, the key difference with ECS is you do want to uh, allow those ECS services to scale ver uh, vertically, and you want them to be able to scale down as well. So this is one thing ECS is missing. It was a little bit of a gap. So the long-running processes, when they need to scale down, they can be interrupted. If the EC2 instance underneath goes away, you might lose some work there. So there's a pattern called container instance draining. Amazon publishes a best uh, practice reference architecture for this. We implemented it. Uh, it the, long, uh, the short version of it is you can use Lambda to hook into the auto-scaling group lifecycle policies. This will tell the containers running on the instance that they're about to be killed and give them a grace period before they are actually killed by auto-scaling. So you just put a little hook in your code. You say, when I get this certain signal, it's time to shut down gracefully. And you set a timeout for the apps to gracefully shut down. It's a little bit hard to read. The URL for the reference architecture is on the bottom there. All right. A few high-level lessons learned. Scale up with a little headroom. Application startup time is a factor, even if you're running in containers. Yes, containers are small. They're lightweight. Uh, we found that in many cases, we were just containerizing existing le legacy applications. That still means they need to start up. They take time to start up. So as a be best practice, we usually scale up twice as fast as we scale down. We'll add two instances or four instances when we scale up, or tasks, rather. And we'll scale down much more slowly, one task at a time. And finally, I mentioned this already, scale on custom metrics. You're not limited to scaling on CPU and memory. Uh, you can push your own custom metrics. You can use queues, queue lengths, et cetera. Uh, the other thing people talk about when they talk about containerization is immutable infrastructure and immutable images. So immutable images are good. Um, however, they don't solve all your problems. Your application code will definitely still break. For example, if you pass in the wrong environment config to it, uh, an example of this is you're passing in a variable called deploy environment. You think it should be production. The application is expecting something like prod. And it turns out the app logic is correct, but it's hard to test that before you actually get to production, right? So that'll still break your containers, even though it's the exact same application code that was running in your pre-production environment. And 
probably goes without saying, but application code will still break if there are environmental differences in your actual VPC. So if you're going to use infrastructure as code, I recommend that it's, it's uh, holistic, that it's comprehensive and covers your entire environment. Otherwise, um, it's almost as good as nothing at all. Okay, so the lesson here, post-deployment testing and automated rollback. I think my final lesson here is around uh, identity and access management. So access policies are tough. Using CloudFormation or using uh, Terraform, anyone that wants to modify the environment using your Terraform or CloudFormation scripts probably needs wide uh, access to all of, all of the different things in your environment. S3 buckets, could be RDS instances, uh, ECS, batch, et cetera. So this is fine for your administrators. It might not be what you want for all of your developers. Uh, so this is tricky. There's a lot of possible solutions to this. Um, one that I recommend is just isolate your environments. Put your production environment in a separate AWS account altogether. That is nice isolation. That means hopefully no nightmare scenarios running uh, the wrong command. All right, getting towards the end here. Benefits that we realized include a really simplified deploy pipeline. We can deploy any kind of app that we want using the same pipeline as Dockerized containers. And we experienced very uh, uh, great efficiency increases in our deploy time. We were taking 30 minutes to roll out those auto-scaling groups in the old days. We can deploy to ECS in 30 seconds or less. We do that all the time now. Finally, predictability, uh, visibility, uh, I mentioned most of that. Promoting Docker images from our staging environment to production is now very clear cut because we're using the same tagging for our images and our Git code and our ECS tasks. So overall, simplified operations. So that's about all the time I have. Um, thank you all. Appreciate it. Um, and I think I hand it back to Jamie. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Haven. Nice job. Okay, for the next portion of the talk, uh, I'd like to switch gears now and, and uh, focus on AWS Batch. Uh, so AWS Batch, a quick show of hands. How many folks have had a chance to kick the tires on the, on the service or uh, looked at the, at the service? Yeah, we, we, we launched Batch uh, last year at, at reInvent, and uh, we, we've actually uh, had a, a number of releases over the past year. But before I get into the capabilities of Batch, I wanted to first talk a little bit about what it is and, and what was the motivation for creating the service. Um, so historically, if you, were, if you were to deploy batch computing infrastructure um, on-premise, you would, you would start by uh, provisioning a large number of, of relatively homogenous resources. Um, you would pick these, the, the, the instance type or the virtual or physical machine size based on the, the typical deed of the jobs that you would want to run in your environment. Um, and you keep that infrastructure around for, for a few years and then, and then go through a refresh cycle. And uh, in doing so, you'd have to kind of shoehorn your jobs as, as the, the requirements for those jobs evolved over that, that, that multi-year process into fitting into the resources that you've provisioned. Now, obviously, the cloud simplifies this, but in order to take advantage of things like many instance types and, and instead have uh, resources, compute resources, instance types, and containers be provisioned in response to the needs of your jobs, um, you needed to build a, a lot of automation. You need to stitch together probably about a dozen different AWS services. And so a, a few folks, my, myself included, helped a lot of our customers um, go through the process of, of organizing all of these different services, building these, uh, assembling these building blocks to create um, a system whereby you could eventually submit your first job to the queue. And this was taking a lot of our customers a few months uh, just to get to the point of that, that first successful job submission. 
And so we wanted to simplify that and offer a fully managed service. And so that, that was the first tenant or, or design goal for AWS Batch, uh, give you a, a managed service that provides batch computing primitives. So you focus on submitting jobs to queues, let us pick the right resources and, and run your workloads for you. Uh, the second thing we wanted to do, and, and, and Zaven talked about this, the importance of, of, of being able to specify a, a role for the, for the work that's happening, so you have fine-grained permissions. You want to make it very easy for your, your batch processing workloads to make calls to recognition or Dynamo or S3 um, and do so without having to embed credentials within your applications. And so uh, tight integration with, with identity and access management was important for us. And then thirdly, we wanted to help our customers reduce the cost of, of using AWS for batch processing. And so that meant that we wanted to make Spot a first-class citizen. Uh, we wanted to uh, simplify automated retries of, of workloads in response to, to Spot terminations or, or other things that might interrupt your work. Uh, and so we, we built that into the service, too. And so what Batch does is it gives you a way to submit your jobs, which run within a Docker container. And each of your jobs will have a, a predetermined, not by you, amount of CPU and memory that you allocate to those jobs. You submit those jobs, which are based on a, a job definition or a template, similar to an ECS task definition, uh, which tells us the container that you'd like to use, the, the command you'd like to run within the container, environment variables and parameters and things along, along those lines, including the identity and access management role. And you submit your job to a job queue. Within your account, you can have multiple job queues, and these job queues can have a priority relative to each other. So for example, you might have a production job queue and a development job queue. And uh, you might have a job queue specifically for GPU jobs uh, that, that's really optimized um, in terms of what resources it has access to. And mapped to these job queues is something called a compute environment. A compute environment is a, a logical set of rules where you tell us how big and how small. You know, min vCPUs equals zero, max vCPUs equals 10,000. And you tell us the instance types that you'd like us to be able to choose from. And you can be very prescriptive and say, use P3 instances or, or uh, P3 extra large, or uh, be as general as optimal, and we'll pick from any of the CM or R instance families. And then you map these compute environments, uh, also specifying whether you want us to use on-demand or spot, to your job queues, and then we will uh, provision resources. We'll choose from the range of instance types that are available that you've given us permission to launch on your behalf and launch the right quantity and the right distribution of instance types based on the needs of the jobs that are, are running or, or are ready to run. And we'll, we'll launch those instances very quickly, um, especially with per second billing. And then as your work finishes, if, there's no more jobs, if there are no more jobs that can take advantage of that already launched instance, we'll very quickly turn it off for you. Uh, typically within a minute or two of, of the, the job finishing, if not sooner. And then the AWS Batch Scheduler is the part of AWS uh, Batch that's responsible for uh, sequencing your jobs and making sure that we're running jobs in your high-priority queue before jobs in the low-priority queue if they have a common set of compute resources that they're, they're contending for. Uh, making sure that if you have uh, multiple jobs, A, B, and C, such that C depends on B, B depends on A, that we run those in the right order. And that if A fails, we don't try to run B and C. Instead, we, we let you go fix that um, and make sure that you're notified that there's been a failure so that you can correct that issue. So now talking about a little bit about what's happened since uh, this time last year. Um, so when we launched Batch, we had one region we supported, US East 1. Uh, we're now in nine regions around the world. And in early 2018, you'll, you can expect that we'll be in the remaining regions that we, we don't yet support today. Uh, that includes the, the commercial regions that we aren't yet covering, as well as uh, GovCloud and, and some of the other uh, non-public regions. 
we added support for custom machine images. So by default, we'll use the ECS optimized machine image. Um, but if you'd like, you can use your own machine image. And we'll uh, launch many instances based on that machine image. And so that's useful if you want to auto-mount elastic file systems so that you could have that file system be mounted as slash data or slash input or output in your, in your container instances as your job is running. It uh, gives you the ability to easily run FPGA or GPU accelerated workloads. Um, it also allows you to provision uh, storage in, in a way that's more optimal for the type of work that you're running, maybe uh, moving with to larger or faster or different types of EBS volumes. Um, we added support for the new instance types as they've launched. Uh, C5 support launched on Tuesday, M5 is coming very soon. Um, and then in response to per second billing, um, instead of more gradually scaling up instances, um, because we didn't know yet how long your jobs might run, and we would wait and see, okay, are these resources fully utilized or, or uh, are they gonna be sitting idle? We used to hold on to instances for the majority of your billing hour in case additional work arrived. But with the transition to per second billing, what we can do now is immediately go to 11 when you, you give us a, a ton of jobs. You submit 10,000 jobs, 100,000 jobs. Uh, and you've given us uh, max vCPUs in your computer environment set to a, a reasonably high value, we will scale up as, as high as we need to go to run as many of those jobs concurrently as we can. And then once the work finishes, we'll scale back down to min vCPUs, ideally zero. And it's what uh, most of our, our users uh, specify for that particular parameter. Um, and then we added support for tagging of, of spot instances. Uh, manageability and performance features were uh, really important for our, our end users, and so we um, added the ability to automatically retry jobs. If you have a spot termination or if your application has a, a non-zero exit code uh, failure, we can automatically retry your job up to the number of times that you specify when you submit the job. We'll move your job back to the head of the queue and we'll run it on the next available instance, either one that already exists or one that we launched to replace a, a failed um, EC2 instance. Uh, when we initially launched AWS Batch, we designed it to support jobs that lasted for 15 minutes or longer. And on day one, we had a ton of users that were running jobs that lasted for a fraction of a second. And in order to uh, handle resource provisioning and make sure that we're uh, getting the highest possible utilization of your compute resources, you take very different approaches with long-running versus short-running jobs. And so we've, we've done a lot of work over the past year to ensure that we can just as easily run two-second or five-second long jobs um, in, in, in order to, in a way that, that gets you 90% or higher utilization of your underlying compute resources. We've added support to Batch in, in CloudFormation. Terraform also supports AWS Batch. And uh, a very recent and, and important launch is the ability to use event-driven architectures. So as your jobs transition from one state to another, from submitted to pending to runnable, starting, running, et cetera, we now emit CloudWatch events at each of those state transitions so that you can track and, and set up filters and, and understand that a job uh, based on a particular job definition just failed with a, a following reason and automatically handle that in, in a way that's different from jobs that have succeeded. Uh, added support for uh, HIPAA-compliant workloads. And uh, an area that we've, we've seen very recent innovation is around uh, workflows and pipelines and, and submission of jobs that have a large number of copies. So when we designed the service, we originally designed it um, in a way that we, we didn't want to be too opinionated about how workflows would, would operate. So if you want to tell us about the dependencies of your jobs, you can do that. You can submit job A, B, and C and tell us the, the relationship that exists between these jobs. Or if you prefer, you can use a workflow system. Maybe it's Step Functions or Airflow or Luigi or, or Pegasus or a number of other commercial and open source workflow systems and instead have them uh, submit a job to batch, uh, listen for the, the success or the failure of that job and then proceed to the next stage in your workflow. Both of those models work equally well with an AWS and you can combine them too. 
Uh, for those of you who'd like to integrate step functions at AWS Batch, uh, we have a reference architecture uh, that links here to the, to the GitHub repo. And in the README file in that GitHub repo, we have links to the four-part blog post that walk you through uh, an architecture um, that, that, you, that you can see here that, that shows how you would um, use step functions, um, in this case, um, to, to submit jobs to AWS Batch through an AWS Lambda function using a template that we have in the Lambda console. Your jobs, of course, running images stored in ECR or, or Docker Hub or your own private repo, and your jobs can, of course, interact with services like S3. Now, a feature that we just added on, on Tuesday is array jobs. And array jobs are the ability to submit not just one job, but many copies of a job with a single API call. So initially, we support submitting jobs that have 10,000 copies or up to 10,000 copies. We'll be increasing that pretty quickly. And you could use this, for example, to have a, a job that's running the same command. Maybe it's a transcoding job um, against 1,000 uh, objects that reside in an S3 bucket. Each copy of the job will be identical in the command, the, the CPU, the, the Docker image it's using, the, the memory that we allocate to it. Um, and we'll give you an extra environment variable that tells you the index within that array for that particular child within the job. We'll manage the degree of concurrency of execution for you. And then each of those jobs uh, can, can perform their, their part of a, a much larger uh, piece of work that needs to be done. With this, we're also updating the, de the dependency model between jobs. So you can express, in this case, uh, of job A, job B with many copies, and job C, that job B is dependent upon job A, and that job C should only be started once all elements of job B have completed successfully. We've added the support to the console, and uh, you'll see, uh, for example, we have uh, different dependency models like end-to-end -end dependencies, which we'll get into in just a moment. Uh, this is the syntax, uh, fairly straightforward, actually. Uh, the, the, the big change is around array properties and, and telling us the size of the array job. In this case, we're submitting a 10,000-wide array job. And every child job will have the same job ID uh, with a, a, an additional you know, colon zero through 99999 in this case. Um, this is how you would su submit jobs with, with different dependencies between arrays and non-array jobs. Uh, we have an array job A. Once all of the elements have been completed by expressing a dependency on the, the parent job ID, um, you'll be able to then proceed to, to job B. If you call describe jobs on an array job with 10,000 copies, you'll be able to see a summary of how many of the children are in each status, you know, how many of these are in a pending state, how many are runnable, how many have succeeded, how many have failed. And then you can call describe jobs on individual child uh, elements within that, that broader array job. You can also use the list jobs API to, to get a listing of all the jobs in a particular state. In this case, we have an array job that depends on a non-array job. You can also have a really interesting model, which is the end-to-end -end dependency model. So say you have a, a processing pipeline. Maybe it's an image processing pipeline uh, where the first stage you need to you know, first validate that the, the file uh, wasn't corrupted in, in transit. Maybe the, the second stage is to do a rectilinear correction. And the third stage, you're going to make recognition calls or, or try to do some uh, computer vision analysis of this. You could easily submit that and, and process 10,000 images by just making three API calls, one for each of those different commands you'd like to operate. And in doing so, uh, by expressing an end-to-end -end dependency, as element 42 of job A completes, then element 42 of job B will be considered runnable. And we can proceed on to that, even if there's some stragglers in job A. Uh, if you have a sequential processing, uh, you can express a, a a, a sequential relationship between the elements within a single array job. We'll process element zero, then one, then two, and three, and so forth. Um, and you can express dependencies on individual elements of an array job, three, seven, and 42. Only once those have completed, then move on to the, to the next stage. 
And this becomes uh, really useful when you have pipelines where each stage is not only running a different command, but might also require different uh, CPU or memory or GPU or FPGA configurations. And so in this model, um, as we you know, complete job A, the, the initial setup job, and we proceed to a, a network I.O. intensive job, uh, we'll run those on one instance type. And maybe the second stage, um, we'll start to scale down these instances as quickly as this work is completed and then move on to a C5 instance to run these workloads. And then maybe we'll move on to uh, an M5 or, or an R4 instance um, before we, we have our final cleanup task. And in doing so, you, you can submit these workloads without having to tell us which instance type your job is running on. We'll, we'll pick all of that for you if you want us to. You, of course, have the ability to, to tell us the instance types if you prefer that. Uh, so just uh, summarizing with, uh, with the, the roadmap and what you can expect from us going forward. Uh, so we, we've invested heavily in our, our uh, web development team for the AWS Batch console. So in addition to having a parity with the APIs for AWS Batch, we're going to be adding a number of capabilities that give you additional telemetry, the ability to uh, see more holistically what's happening in your job queues and your compute environments, uh, adding a number of other capabilities, making the, the console far easier to use. Uh, we're going to give you the ability to have the other half of event-driven architectures, the ability to automatically submit a job to AWS Batch to a particular job queue using a pre-selected job definition when events matching a particular cloud, uh, a particular filter um, are, are admitted to CloudWatch. So, for example, object arrives in S3, automatically submit a job to production queue running the, the um, image processing uh, command or uh, image processing job definition. Um, we will also be uh, extending a batch to support CloudTrail auditing of our APIs. We already um, support CloudTrail auditing of the underlying services that we manage on your behalf. And uh, consumable resources. Uh, super interesting feature if you're using, um, if you're running jobs that have a dependency on licensed software, uh, or if you have jobs that are, are you, know, you have thousands of compute resources at your disposal, but you have jobs that might uh, be connecting to a database that can only handle so many connections. So the consumable resource feature will allow you to specify an integer that corresponds to the maximum number of jobs that can run at any given time uh, that have a dependency on this consumable resource. As we start the job, we decrement. As we uh, finish the job, we increment that consumable resource. And make sure that we don't start your job until, uh, until that resource is available and, and that we don't waste any uh, compute resources needlessly trying to run jobs that are never going to be able to succeed. Uh, we'll be moving to support multi-node parallel jobs. So if you have MPI applications, you'd like us to provision a cluster and run your job across many machines with uh, low latency, high bandwidth connectivity between those instances. That'll be coming to batch very soon. And uh, finally, we'll, we'll finish out the regional expansion. Um, so sharing a couple of links, which you can, you can see if you look at the slides on, on SlideShare, let you quickly take a picture if you like. And then um, I'd like to hand things off to Lee from, from here to talk about how uh, Hira is using AWS Batch for their autonomous driving systems. Thank you. Thanks, Jamie. Um, my name is Lee Baker. I'm a senior architect with the highly automated driving division uh, for Hira Technologies. Now, a lot of people uh, may not know um, who we are. Um, but odds are you interact with our products quite often. Four out of five in-vehicle navigation systems use our maps. Um, and we generate uh, this map data. We have 400 cars around the world uh, driving around collecting uh, high-resolution imagery, uh, GPS, LiDAR, etc. Um, and that generates 28 terabytes of, uh, of map data per day. Um, 
so we provide a lot of products to a lot of different companies in a lot of different industries, uh, with the one common thread being location. Um, in fact, we just launched uh, the open location platform um, to, uh, to, to some customers, and it will, be, um, it will be open coming soon. So if you're interested in that, check it out, here.com. Okay, so the use case I want to talk to you today about is occupancy grid. Now, at a high level, what we do is translate a LiDAR point cloud into what's called an occupancy grid. And as you can see, the, the purple cubes, that is the occupancy grid. That um, it indicates when something is occupying that space. And this is very useful for self-driving cars for obvious reasons, so they don't run into things. Um, so we had to create a pipeline for this, and uh, basically how this goes is a customer submits a route or, or many routes, but a route is then partitioned um, into equal sizes, and we can process each of those in parallel. So this is kind of an embarrassingly parallel problem. Um, some of the requirements we had was the one-month deadline. The previous architecture just wasn't scaling, um, and they came to us, uh, and they had one month until the first customer deliverable. Um, we also we didn't want to hamper researcher productivity. We wanted to uh, get everything out of their way so they can just focus on developing the algorithm. Um, we also wanted to make it generic for other teams. Uh, occupancy grid is pretty typical of the workloads we run. So if this worked well, um, we could apply this to other projects. Um, we needed to support many different languages. Um, Occupancy Grid is C++. We run a lot of Scala, um, a lot of Python, some Java, some Go. I, I'm sure there's other languages I'm not even aware we're using um, around the company. Um, and then, of course, we wanted it to auto-scale. So uh, this, this is a very bursty workload. Um, customers will submit um, many routes at once. Uh, these will need to be turned around very quickly, uh, sometimes within a day. And then maybe it's idle for a few days until we get the next batch. So we didn't want to pay for idle capacity, obviously scale down to zero. Um, and then minimal care and feeding. We wanted to be able to just hand this off, have it just work, um, without a whole lot of centralized uh, infrastructure, really minimize the things that could go wrong. So one common question we have is, why isn't this on a deep learning framework? Well, deep learning frameworks are actually better for structured data, like images. Uh, LiDAR point clouds are unstructured, so uh, it just, it's not a good fit as of now. They're working, uh, they're working on that. Um, but, but for now, it doesn't work. But more importantly, it was the researcher's decision. We didn't want to impose anything. Uh, so also Spark. Spark really shines at uh, parallel processing. Spark doesn't have native C++ support, though. Um, you can use the pipe operator and uh, make it work that way, but you quickly run into memory issues because Spark's not aware of uh, what's going on in that process. So we ruled that out. So containers are the logical way to go. So we looked at ECS, just uh, kind of vanilla ECS. Um, and ECS is great. 
but you still need to deal with uh, manual auto-scaling tuning, um, instance-type optimization. So you, if you have varying, uh, if you have jobs of varying sizes, you end up having to kind of pick the largest instance so that uh, your jobs won't fail. And queue management, we still would have had to solve that problem as well. So we kept looking. Uh, Kubernetes was another thing. Simply, we didn't have the team experience and felt it would be too risky um, with such a tight timeline. So um, we were aware of Batch and decided to give it a try. And this is what we came up with. Um, I really struggled with this, with this slide because it's so simple. But I think that actually kind of illustrates how easy it was for us. Um, so the operator submits all the jobs onto uh, the batch queue, and batch handles the rest. So we use the managed batch compute environment. Um, it, it picks the instance uh, types and, um, best for our resource requirements. And it actually, um, it, it actually learns and gets better um, over time. Um, so we did run into uh, some, some challenges, um, but luckily uh, we had Tom, who helped us out with all those. He's going to walk you through this. Okay. Yeah, so let's just talk a little bit about some of the things that were a challenge. Uh, I, I'm a solution architect, so I get to really get uh, into, the, into the weeds with a customer. And actually, here I've been with for almost two years now. So lots of different types of projects, lots of things going on. This one was really fun. The story kind of starts early this calendar year, and it starts with a data scientist just asking, how do, how do we make this easy? Right? I really want the simplicity of, I'm going to write my algorithm on my machine, and then I just want to hit a button, and it just all runs. And Lee is doing a lot of work gathering those requirements, understanding the different services. Um, and I'm on the back end trying to work with our different teams and make sure they're making the right decision. Now, along the way, um, we had some, some I mean, I won't, I won't say false starts, I'll just say you learn by doing, right? You, you go in and you, you feel it out and, and try to see if it, it fits uh, exactly what you're trying to accomplish. So the, the big one was orchestration. We spent a lot of time on this. Uh, we did different uh, POCs. We saw uh, some things that were successful and some things that weren't. The, the one thing, this, this concept of array jobs, and please keep this in mind, right? The, the, we talked about it earlier, the only constant is change. So a lot of the things that you're gonna deal with are point time decision making. And at this time, array jobs wasn't an available feature. So, I mean, we'll continue to reassess, but right now, uh, at early this year, you could really only set up 20 dependencies on the jobs, and they were thinking they wanted to scale this to thousands and thousands. We were orders of magnitude out of, out of balance here. So we had to come up with uh, some better way to orchestrate the, the, the scale, the fan out and fan in of their pipeline. Um, so Spark was an option that was considered. Uh, the, the Spark kind of felt a little bit like overkill, and it had some of those limitations that Lee mentioned, like not being able to run the C++ um, native stuff. So that was kind of whacked out. Uh, the, the step functions project was really interesting, because we took step functions and ran lambda shims on top of, you know, 
executing batch processes. And then, you know, you'd have to build kind of a lot of these pollers to check. And this was, again, before you had these wired up events that now can come through and actually rehydrate and keep the, keep the pipelines running. So it just didn't feel, it felt like the custom activities and, and the amount of kind of work that was necessary to orchestrate these jobs was too cumbersome. Um, and then Airflow ends up being very, very uh, nice, tight fit to what they were doing, and they're, they're continuing to use that today. So that was orchestration. It's like, you know, the batch service, the architecture diagram that Lee showed is, is really simple. Like dropping them on there is, is, and watching it scale and manage the resources, all those were outside, like no longer a problem area. But just driving it from, from start to finish and tracking it was something that still had to be solved. And they did that with, a, with Airflow. So then the other big one is like, the, the data scientists didn't want to write S3 code. They didn't want to have to, um, you know, have a completely sort of different mechanism for storing input and output data. They wanted to be able to run it and then just, like I said, move it, hit a button, and just go. So how are we going to accomplish that? Well, the first idea was let's just include um, libraries and data all, all right there packaged, but it, it, in the image, it just got uh, to the point where you know, every time data was changing, you had a new image, the versioning was, was problematic. Um, similar here with a base Docker image was another attempt. Uh, that also became uh, too, too difficult to, to manage all of the different versioning and maintenance. Uh, there was flexibility issues and, and it was risky in that, you know, that, that, base, that base image was, was going to be potentially a problem. Um, and then EFS, because now we've got this idea of a shared state. It's not like you have to rewrite the code. It's just like the normal, the normal same uh, semantics of, of accessing the data and writing the data. The challenge with, with EFS was that we, we kind of had a difficult time um, running long sustained jobs. And, and at that point, really, there was no way to get like your EBS volume um, uh, PyOps model. Right, so you kind of had to know, and this data is very transient, so it would sort of show up. And if you know EFS, the, the Elastic File System, it gives you the performance based on the size, right? So you kind of had to go in and do a lot, of, you had to do a lot of uh, manipulating it to get it to the performance levels that, that they were looking for. So in the end, it ends up being um, a runner model container that has secondary containers. So that Docker in, you know, could spin up secondary containers and link those reference those, and now the data is separate, and so that just ends up being part of the architecture of what they included in their application. Uh, a couple of other small challenges, just the storage, like auto-scaling EBS volumes, so you kind of, similar to the, the, the scenario we described where you got to have the largest instance, you kind of have to think about having the largest amount of data available for a varying levels of, of um, potential ingest. So that's a, that's a bit of a challenge. So right now it's, it's overscaled, and we're going to work on coming up with some ways to, to fix that so that it's a little bit better from a cost perspective. Um, and then managed versus unmanaged compute environments, you really want to make sure you let Jamie's team do their thing with their software and, and scale that down to zero. Um, you know, it can, it can very easily and quickly um, be out of bounds from a cost profile perspective if you don't set that up to, to go ahead and auto-manage. So do you want to talk about next steps or no? All right, so, not, so like you said, array jobs. Uh, it, it was actually Jamie came out and talked to them in Chicago, the whole team. They were really excited about array jobs and continue to be excited about array jobs. So we'll, 
we'll be looking at that, you know, going into early next year. Um, and there's a lot of other projects, so there's definitely uh, more opportunity to keep building this. I, I've actually met with quite a few other teams that are building similar concepts at here, and, and this model that they've got is um, really ideal. It's serverless, it's, it's not a lot of heavy maintenance, uh, so we're looking forward to, to bringing in other players in, in the company. You wanna wrap up? Yeah, one more comment. So uh, with regards to storage at the job level, this is another area where we're gonna be innovating in AWS Batch, giving you the ability in your job definition to express the storage requirements um, of your job. Um, in the meantime, though, I would definitely recommend that you take a look at the Batch It project, uh, which we, we covered in the, the CMP 323 session, uh, Base2 Genomics. Um, open sourced a, a capability so that when they're uh, submitting their batch jobs, they, they have a little wrapper that will actually provision an EBS volume for that job and then, and then get rid of it once the, the, the workload's done. Um, you can also conceive of, of using this to pass EBS volumes from job to job if you have dependency chains. Um, something to look into, but uh, cool. we'll also be playing a more active role there too. Um, we're a little bit short on time, uh, so we're gonna wrap up uh, with the main presentation now, but um, we're the last session in this room. Happy to stick around, and if you have any questions, uh, I'd love to take them now. So uh, thanks again for, for all of your time today. Thanks to uh, Zavin, Lee, and Tom. Really appreciate it. Good job, guys. Thank you.